It's the 9th of September in the year of our salvation, 2009. As a matter of fact, when I was making this podcast, I looked up and I happened to see that it was also uh, just after the ninth hour. As a matter of fact, it was the ninth minute after the ninth hour and the ninth day of the ninth month of the ninth year of this century. So it was 99999 and the... Ninth second would have made it another nine, six nines. Today we are going to drill into the hymn for Compline, for Compline in the Liturgy of the Hours, and also the Breviarium Romanum, the famous hymn Te Lucis Ante Terminum. And we might hear some different musical versions along the way, just as we started with a version by Henry Balfour Gardner. And then we are going to hear another story from the little world of Don Camillo. Every once in a while in these audio projects, I drill into a hymn from the Liturgy of the Hours, looking at variations and different settings. I have, for example, looked at some Vespers hymns. Well, now let's see a Compline hymn. As a matter of fact, the famous Compline hymn, Te Lucis Ante Terminum. This hymn has been the stuff of imagination for centuries, and therefore it has had many treatments. Uh, both uh, in melody and in music. It's been mentioned, uh, I don't know how many times in literature, there are many cultural references, and uh, there are various Gregorian chant tones for it. Uh, For many centuries, of course, this hymn has been the only hymn that was sung for Compline, the last hour of the day, the one that is sung just really before you go to bed. And as a result, uh, it being, you know, the only hymn that you would sing, it wound up getting lots of different melodies for it. We'll hear a few of those, at least the alternatives for the uh, the time during the year. Now, in the modern form of Compline, there are a couple of options for hymns. Now, they added an option. But the classic hymn for Compline is Te Lucis Ante Terminum, and I'm going to limit myself to that one. Now, some people have thought that St. Ambrose of Milan was the author of this hymn, but that is not at all well supported in good scholarship. In other words, he isn't the author. Uh, this is probably uh, coming from perhaps Irish monasticism from the 8th or ninth century. Uh, maybe a little earlier. Uh, it could have its roots in earlier hymns, perhaps going back to the 5th century. I saw one uh, source mention Gregory the Great, perhaps. But we know at least it's not the work of Ambrose. It's later than that. Now, there are a couple versions of this hymn now. The text has been changed. Uh, That which was prayed through the centuries uh, is in the Breviarium Romanum, as it was before the Second Vatican Council, and that which was reworked for the modern Liturgy of the Hours uh, comes from the time after the Council. We're going to hear both versions. I'll read them in Latin first, and then in a close translation. Uh, Maybe I'll give you a poetic 
translation as well. But you're going to be able to hear a difference in theology, kind of a difference in emphasis. Now let's hear the Latin of the old version first that you would hear in the Breviarium Romanum. Were you praying with that book? Te lucis ante terminum, rerum creator, poshimus ut pro tua clemencia, sis presul et custodia. Procul recedant somnia, et noctium phantasmata, hostemque nostrum comprime, ne poluantur corpora. Presta pater piissime, Patrique compar uice, cum spiritu paraclito, regnans per omne seculum. Amen. close translation of it. And I'm taking this from a, a three-volume uh, edition of the Breviarium Romanum that was done with an English-facing uh, translation. A very useful uh, old book. Before the day is finished, creator of the world, we earnestly ask of you that, in keeping with your mercy, you be our protector and defense. May no ill dreams that's in quotation marks, no nightly fears and fantasies, that's also in quotation marks, come near us. Hold in check our enemies, that our bodies be not defiled. Grant this, most loving Father, and you, the only Son, equal to the Father, and with the Spirit, the Paraclete, reigning through the ages. Amen. Now, what's going on here, uh, we have this noctium phantasmata, which they translate in this version as nightly fears and fantasies. Phantasmata, this would almost be like, you know, ghosts or evil spirits, I think. You know, phantasmata that give you, um, you know, that disturb your sleep. Procul recidant somnia et noctium phantasmata. So they're talking about bad dreams and disturbances of evil spirits. And I think we have to remember that the enemy of the soul... Um, though he can't touch our will, uh, they can stir up, you know, the intellect. They can stir up memories, and they can stimulate our passions and our appetites. And so, in this second uh, strophe, we're asking that God hold the enemy in check. Ostemque nostrum comprime, ne poluantur corpora, lest our bodies be defiled. Now this word poluantur is reminiscent of, uh, reminiscent of you know, what we have the word in English, uh, pollution. But uh, pollution in the old Latin uh, spiritual writing uh, had to do with you know, things that might happen in the night which are you know, against our will. And uh, you know, the idea is, is that 
you know, at night, it could be that in the darkness of the night, the, the passions are being stirred up in, in a way that is not proper and is dangerous for our soul. The enemy of the soul might play on that. And uh, so we're asking for protection from the enemy. And that's really very much uh, the emphasis of this uh, version, this older version, uh, traditional version of the hymn. I have a poetic version, poetic translation, done by John Mason Neal. It's N-E-A-L-E, I think, or N-E-A-L, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, he, he died in 1866, and his version goes like this. To thee, before the close of day, creator of the world, we pray that with thy wonted favor thou wouldst be our guard and keeper now. From all ill dreams defend our eyes, from nightly fears and fantasies. Tread underfoot our ghostly foe, that no pollution we may know. O Father, that we ask be done, through Jesus Christ thine only Son, who with the Holy Ghost and thee shall live and reign eternally. Now that was for the older traditional version, but let's hear the modern version. First of all, uh, let's get the Latin in our ears, as is proper. Te lucis ante terminum, rerum creator poshimus, ut solita clementia, sis presul ad custodiam. no real not too many too much difference there uh, but let's now go on te corda nostra somniant te per soporem sentient tuamque semper gloriam vicina luce concinant Vitam salubrem tribue, nostrum calorem brevice, tetram noctis caliginem, tuaco lustret claritas. Presta, Pater Omnipotens, per Jesum Christum Dominum, qui tecum in perpetuum, regnat cum Sancto Spiritu. Amen. Now, if you still had the Latin of the old version uh, in your ears, uh, you'd hear a lot of differences there. Number one, they even added a strophe to this. Uh, they changed the end to a different formula. But that second uh, part was is just completely different. It's absolutely different. Now, here, listen to the end. Here, listen to what this is in a, in a close translation. Uh, the first part will sound familiar, but after that, um, we're off to the races. Before the end of the light, we pray, O creator of things, that with your accustomed mercy, you be protector and guard. Okay, so far so good. Going on. May our hearts 
dream of you. May they sense you in sleep, and may they always sing out your glory when the light draws near. Give us good health, restore our strength, and let the horrid darkness be illuminated by your brightness. Grant this, Almighty Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reign forever. Amen. Now, just about that last part, you know, the, the peisime earlier, uh, we had in the translations, it's like most loving, but peisime, when you take pius and you apply it to God, it really means merciful, doesn't it? Most merciful father, maybe then is even better than most loving. So um, here we don't have the emphasis on mercy, do we? Another thing is that the whole issue of the attacks of the enemy is is just gone. It's gone. Maybe there's a remnant or a relic of it when we talk about horrid darkness being illuminated by God's brightness, perhaps. Uh, maybe there's something implicit when we say, may our hearts dream of you, may they sense you in sleep, You know, in, in other words, instead of something else. Uh, may they always sing out your glory, when the light draws near, in other words, you know, we're focused on you, God, instead of like something else. But uh, what this really focuses on is regaining our strength uh, because we're weary from the day so that we can have like a good day tomorrow. We, we want good health. We, we want our strength restored. And of course, you know, this, I mean, these are fine. These are good things to pray about. After all, you know, how many people who are sick, how many people who are ill really have their greatest distress at night? Uh, I was talking with a, a doctor friend not too long ago who reminded me, as a cardiologist, reminded me that uh, so very many people, um, their their energies, it's like their vital energies decrease at night. And so many people die at night or in the very early hours of the morning when they're at their weakest and uh, this doctor was mentioning this because it's, it's odd that in, you know, so many hospitals are constantly waking up patients at night when they're at their weakest, you know. Anyway, I'm digressing here a little bit. But, you know, think about how many people have distress at night. It's a difficult time. There's like a conflict between our human nature and nighttime now, isn't there? Uh, think also about the ancient world when the traditional text was developed. You know, there were no electric lights. And, you know, when the lights were put out, it was truly dark. It was really, really dark. It was darker than a lot of us in the modern world can imagine. It was dark and it was, um, you didn't have the background noise of any kind of machine. And so the things, you know, going on at night, the little night noises and so forth, would have been amplified in our ears, uh, leading to the imagination to run wild, perhaps, night was cold it was dark in the winter it was terribly terribly long in the northern hemisphere and you could imagine that in some of these you know monasteries it was a you know a very difficult time the night was difficult and so it was a it was a very heartfelt prayer this hymn being raised up to god uh, as a result, you can imagine why, imagine how it would capture the imagination so much and how, uh, because they're singing it all the time, there might be different versions of it. Let's start digging into some different settings, uh, including the Gregorian chant uh, settings, the different tones for the year. 
In the Liber Hymnarius, which is published by the monks of Solem, it's to be used with the newer form of the office, and it has, of course, as the name suggests, all the hymns for the office. You can find the hymn for Compline, uh, Te Luci Sante Terminum, and uh, as well the alternative hymn, which is Christe Qui Splendor et Dies, uh, in uh, various tones, you find one for weekdays of the year, for memorials, for feasts, and for Sundays, and for solemnities. And uh, why don't I just sing for you the, the first line uh, in each of these tones, just so that you can hear the different tones. Here's the one for the weekdays of the year. Te lucis ante terminum, rerum creator poshibus, ut solita clementia, sis presul ad custodiam. That was for weekdays of the year. How about memorials? Te lucis ante terminum, rerum creator poshibus, Ut solita clementia, sis presul an custodiam. And now for feast days. Te lucis ante terminum, rerum creator poshimus. Ut solita clementia, sis presul an custodiam. And now for Sundays during the year after first and second Vespers. 
Te lucis ante terminum, rerum creator poshimus, ut solita clemencia, sis presul ad custodiam. And for solemnities. Te lucis ante terminum, Rerum creator poshibus, ut solita clemencia, sis presul ad custodia. Now, those are the tones that you would use during the year, the uh, ordinary time, the tempus perandum. And there are also tones that you would use during the Advent cycle and then Christmas and uh, also Lent and Easter time. Uh, but since we are in ordinary time, I will leave those for another day.
That was a version of Te Luci Sante Terminum by the great English composer Thomas Tallis, who died in 1585. He was a court musician from Henry VIII into the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, truly magnificent, some of the greatest, greatest polyphonic music ever written. Um, now, there are many, of course, different settings. Gosh, there's a setting by, you know, so many different composers. Benjamin Britten, one comes to mind. Uh, Henry Balfour Gardner, which we heard at the very beginning. Um, and various modern settings, some good, some bad. But um, there are many literary references uh, also. Uh, I think my favorite uh, literary or cultural reference to Te Luci Sante Terminum uh, comes from uh, Dante's Divine Comedy in Canto Eight of the Purgatory. Uh, here Dante, the poet, on his journey to the, through the hell when he re, you know, recovers right reason and then the purification of his soul on his ascent to heaven, um, he gives us a beautiful description in Canto Eight about how the souls who are in purgatory gather and they sing together the Te Luci Sante Terminum, and then the angels, angels of heaven come down to comfort them and guard them during the night. Let's hear a little bit of this canto uh, in the translation by Dorothy Sayers. Uh, there are many different translations of the Divine Comedy. Uh, she died before she... F this is the best one, I think, in, in some respects. I think maybe it has the very best sense of the work overall. Uh, alas, uh, Dorothy Sayers died before she completed the whole thing. Um, but here is her uh, version of Canto Eight. Era già l'ora che volgi il disio ai navicanti, entenerisce il core lo dicano detto ai dolci amici addio, e che lo nuovo peregrin d'amore punge, se ode squilla di lontano, che paia il giorno pianger che si more, quando io incominciai a render vano l'udire e a mirare una dell'alme surta che l'ascoltar chiedea con mano. Ella giunse e levò ambo le palme, ficcando gli occhi verso l'Oriente, come dicesse a Dio, d'altro non calme. Te luci sante, sì devotamente le uscio di bocca e con sì dolci note che fece me a me uscir di mente, e l'altre poi dolcemente e devote seguitar lei per tutto l'inno intero, avendo gli occhi alle superbe. In the hour that melts with homesick yearning, the hearts of seafarers who've had to say farewell to those they love that very morning, hour when the new-made pilgrim on his way feels a sweet pang go through him if he hears far chimes that seem to knell the dying day. Did I suspend the office of my ears and turn to watch a spirit rising there and beckoning with his hand for listeners. Folding his palms, he lifted them in prayer 
with gaze set eastward that said visibly to God, For thee and nothing else I care. Te lucisante, so devoutly he breathed forth, so sweet the singing syllables, all sense of self was ravaged out of me. The others joined their sweet, devout appeals to his, and sang the whole hymn afterward, fixing their eyes on the eternal wheels. Sharpen thy sight now, reader, to regard the truth, for so transparent grows the veil to pass within will surely not be hard. I saw that goodly host stand sentinel thereafter, speechless in expectant love, scanning the sky with lowly looks all pale. And then I saw descending from above two angels, bearing fiery swords in hand, broke short and baited at the points thereof. Green as fresh leaves new budded on a wand their raiment was, which billowed out and blew behind, by flutter of green pinions fanned. One lit down just above us, and one flew to the far bank and poised there in his place, so that the folk lay folded twixt the two. Clearly I saw their bright heads, but the face dazzled the eye beneath the locks of yellow, as every sense is vanquished by excess. There sent from Mary's bosom, said Sordello, to guard the veil, for any moment now the serpent comes. Then to my friend and fellow I turned, not knowing whence twould come or how, and to those trusty shoulders clung affrighted, shuddering an ice-cold sweat upon my brow. And now come down, Sordell again invited. That was from Canto Eight of the Purgatorio by Dante Alighieri, one of the last men who ever lived, I think, who knew everything. Uh, this book just has it all. It's fabulous. If you've never read the Divine Comedy, I suggest you read it and try the Dorothy Sayers translation. That's very, very good. But there, there's some wonderful points there. Uh, first of all, the uh, raiment of the angels is in green, meaning they're angels of hope. You remember that the souls in purgatory are still filled with hope. They know that they're going to be uh, brought into heaven eventually, right? And so it's very appropriate that hope should be a theme in purgatory. Then there's also the solicitude that Mary has for them against the serpent who is going to come. Now remember the, you know, the, the hymn, Te Lucis Ante Terminum, was traditionally something about protection against the attack of the enemy, wasn't it? And you hear uh, one of the souls here um, act, this is very liturgical. You see, in a monastic setting or in a liturgical setting, you always have one person, or you know, perhaps two at times, uh, intone what you're going to sing, and then everybody else joins in. Well, that's what happens here. One soul began, begins to sing, Te Lucis Ante, and then everybody else joins in. But a wonderful point in here is that they are facing east. Remember, he said, folding his palms and lifted them in prayer with gaze set eastward that said visibly to God, for thee and nothing else I care. Everything is oriented to God, and therefore they are praying to the, toward the east. 
This is something that we can reflect on in our own liturgical practice. Today let's have another story from The Little World of Don Camillo by Giovanni Guareschi. These stories about the fictional parish priest of this little town in northern Italy are absolutely wonderful. Uh, they take place in a town, as I mentioned, in northern Italy, near the Po River, in the time after World War II when there was a, a titanic struggle going on between... Uh, communists and Christian Democrats, who were, of course, backed by the church. And uh, it's not too long after the war, so there's a lot of bitter, a lot of bitterness, uh, you know, because there were different factions and so forth. But anyway, in this town, the main characters are, of course, the parish priest, who is Don Camilo Tarrochi, and who is a huge, powerful, powerful man. Um, who is given to, shall we say, uh, little fits of temper, and his nemesis, uh, equally temperamental, the communist mayor named Beppone, uh, he, or Big Joe, and another character, a principal character in all of these stories, is the large crucifix in the parish church, with whom Don Camilo um, talks all the time. And these stories uh, by Giovanni Guareschi uh, reveal a wonderful insight into the human condition and a very solid applied Catholic faith. A lot of common sense in them. Of course, you know, filtered through the Italian temperament, but they can say something to all of us in our day, uh, no matter where we are. So let's hear a story from The Little World of Don Camilo, which is the first in that series of famous books by Giovanni Guareschi. Today, we will hear the chapter called The Avenger. The Avenger Zmilzo rode up on his racing bicycle and braked it by letting his rear end slip off the seat backwards and stop the wheel. Don Camillo was sitting, reading the newspaper on the bench in front of the rectory. He looked up. "'Does Stalin hand you down his trousers?' he asked placidly. Zmilzo handed him a letter, touched his cap, leaped on his bicycle, and was about to disappear around the corner when he slowed down. "'No, the Pope does that,' he called, then stood on his pedals and was gone in a flash. 
Don Camillo had been expecting the letter. It contained an invitation to the inauguration ceremony of the People's Palace, with a program of the festivities enclosed. Speeches, reports, a band, and refreshments. Then, in the afternoon, great boxing match between the heavyweight champion of the local section, comrade Bagotti Mirko, and the heavyweight champion of the provincial federation, comrade Gorlini Anteo. Don Camillo went off to discuss the event. "'Lord!' he exclaimed, when he had read the program aloud, "'if this isn't vile! "'If Pepone weren't such an utter boor, "'he would stage the return match between the knights and the dynamos "'instead of this pummeling bout. "'I'm going to—' "'You're entirely wrong,' Christ interrupted him. "'It's perfectly logical of Pepone to try something different. "'Even if his champion loses, he is still all right. "'One comrade?' fights another. It all remains in the family. But if your team beat his, it would be detrimental to the prestige of his party. Don Camilo, you must admit that Pepone couldn't possibly have staged a return match. And yet, exclaimed Don Camilo, I did stage a match against his team, and what's more, I lost it. But Don Camilo, Christ put in gently, you don't represent a party. Your team was not defending the colors of the church. Or do you perhaps think that that Sunday afternoon defeat was a defeat for the Catholic faith? Don Camilo began laughing. Lord, he protested, you caught me wrong if you accuse me of any such idea. I was only saying, as a sportsman, that Peponi is a boor. And so you will forgive me if I laugh when his famous champion gets such a licking that by the third round he won't know his own name. Yes, I shall forgive you, Don Camillo. But I find it less easy to forgive your enjoying the spectacle of two men pounding each other with their fists. Don Camillo raised his arms. I have never done anything of the kind. Such manifestations of brutality only foster that cult of violence which is already too deeply rooted in the minds of the masses. I agree with you in condemning any sport in which skill is subordinated to brute force. Bravo, Don Camillo, said Christ. If a man feels the need to limber his muscles, he doesn't have to fight with his neighbor. He can put on a pair of well-padded gloves and take it out on a sack of sawdust or a ball suspended somewhere. Exactly, agreed Don Camillo, crossing himself quickly and hurrying away. A little later he passed through the church again. Will you satisfy my curiosity, Don Camillo, called Christ? What is the name of that leather ball which you have attached to the ceiling of your attic? I believe it's called in English a punching bag, muttered Don Camillo, stopping for a moment. And what does that mean? I don't know any English, replied Don Camillo, making a quick escape. Don Camillo attended the inaugural ceremony of the People's Palace, and Pepone accompanied him personally upon a tour of the entire grounds. It was all thoroughly up to date. What do you think of it? asked Pepone, who was burbling with joy. Charming, replied Don Camillo, smiling cordially. To tell you the truth, I never would have thought that a simple builder like Brusco could have done it. True enough, muttered Pepone, who had spent God only knew how much for the best architect in the city. 
quite a good idea to make the windows horizontal instead of perpendicular, observed Don Camillo. The ceilings are not very high, but it's not too obvious, and this, I suppose, is the warehouse? It's the assembly room, Peponi explained. Ah, and you have put the armory and the cells for dangerous adversaries in the basement? No, replied Peponi, we haven't any dangerous adversaries. They are all harmless little people who can remain in circulation. As for an armory, we thought we could use yours if we needed to. An admirable idea, agreed Don Camillo politely. You have been able to see for yourself how well I look after the Tommy gun, which you entrusted to my care, Mr. Mayor. They had pulled up in front of a huge picture representing a man with a heavy walrus mustache, small eyes, and a pipe. "'Is that one of your dead leaders?' asked Don Camillo respectfully. "'That is someone who is very much among the living, and when he comes will end up sitting on the lightning rod of your own church.' "'Too high a position for a humble parish priest.' The highest position in a small community always belongs to the mayor, and from now on I put it at your complete disposal. Are we to have the honor of your presence among us at the boxing match today, Reverend Sir? Asking Peponi, thinking it best to change the subject. Thank you, but you had better give my seat to someone who is better qualified to appreciate the innate beauty and educational significance of the performance but I'll be available at the rectory in case your champion needs the last rites. Just send Zmilzo, and I can be with you in a couple of minutes. During the afternoon, Don Camillo chatted for an hour with Christ, and then asked to be excused. I'm a bit sleepy, and I'll think I'll take a nap, and I thank you for making it rain cats and dogs. The crops needed it. And... Moreover, according to your hopes, it will prevent many people from coming to Peponi's celebration, added Christ. Am I right? Don Camillo shook his head. But the rain, heavy though it was, didn't dampen Peponi's festivities. People flocked from every section of the countryside, and the gymnasium of the People's Palace was as full as an egg. Champion of the Federation was a fine title, and Bagotti was popular in the region. And then it was also, to a certain extent, a match between town and country, and that aroused interest. Peppone surveyed the crowd triumphantly from the front row. He was sure that at the worst Bagotti could only lose on points, which would be almost as good as a victory. On the stroke of four, after an outburst of applause and yelling, the gong was sounded, and the audience began to get tense and excited. The federal champion surpassed Bagotti in style, but Bagotti was quicker, and the first round left the audience breathless. Peppone was pouring with sweat, and looked as if he had swallowed dynamite. The second round began well for Bagotti, who took the offensive, but suddenly he went down in a heap, and the referee began the count. No! bawled Peppone, leaping to his feet. It was below the belt! 
The federal champion smiled sarcastically at Pepone. He shook his head and touched his chin with his glove. No! bellowed Pepone in exasperation, drowning the uproar of the audience. You all saw it! First he hit him low, and then, when the pain made him double up, he gave him a left to the jaw. It was a foul! The federal champion shrugged his shoulders and snickered, and meanwhile the referee, having counted up to ten, was grasping the fallen champion's hand in order to pull him to his feet. Then the tragedy occurred. Pepone threw away his hat and in one bound was in the ring and advanced with clenched fists upon the federal champion. "'I'll show you!' he howled. "'Give it to him, Pepone!' yelled the infuriated crowd. The boxer put up his fists, and Pepone fell upon him like a panzer and struck hard. But Pepone was too furious, and his adversary dodged him easily and slugged him one right on the point of the jaw. He put all his weight behind it, as Pepone just stood there motionless and wide open. It was like hitting a sack of sawdust. Pepone slumped to the floor, and the audience froze into silence. But just as the champion smiled compassionately at the giant lying prone on the mat, there was a terrific yell from the crowd as a man entered the ring. Without even bothering to remove his drenched raincoat or cap, he seized a pair of gloves lying on the stool in the corner, put them on, and, standing on guard squarely before the champion, aimed a terrific blow at him. The champion dodged it and danced round the man, who simply revolved slowly. Then the champion launched a formidable blow. The other barely moved, but parried with his left, while his right shot forward like a thunderbolt. The champion was unconscious when he hit the center of the ring. The crowd went crazy. It was the bell-ringer who brought the news to the rectory, and Don Camillo had to leave his bed to open the door, because the bell-ringer seemed to be insane, and if he hadn't been allowed to pour out the whole story from A to Z, there seemed every reason to fear that he would blow up. Don Camillo went downstairs to report. Well... Christ asked. How did it go? A very disgraceful brawl, such a spectacle of disorder and immorality as you can't imagine. Anything like that time when they wanted to lynch your referee? asked Christ casually. Don Camilo laughed. <laughs> referee my foot. In the second round, Peponi's champion slumped like a sack of potatoes. Then Peponi into the ring and went for the victor. Naturally, although he's as strong as an ox, he's such a hothead that he slugs like a Zulu or a Russian, and the champion gave him one on the jaw that laid him out cold. And so this is the second defeat his section has suffered. Two for the section and one for the federation, chuckled Don Camilo, because that was not the end. No sooner had Pepone gone down than another man jumped into the ring and fell upon the victor. Must have been somebody from one of the neighboring villages, a fellow with a beard and a mustache, who put up his fists and struck out at the federal champion. And I suppose the champion dodged and struck back, and the bearded man went down too and added to the brutal exhibition, Christ remarked. No! The man was as impregnable as an iron safe. 
So the champion began dodging round, trying to catch him off guard, and finally, zack, he puts in a straight one with his right. Then I fainted with the left and caught him square with the right and left the ring. And what had you to do with it? I don't understand. You said, I fainted with the left and caught him square with the right. I can't imagine how I came to say such a thing. Christ shook his head. Could it possibly be because you were the man who struck down the champion? It wouldn't seem so, said Don Camilo gravely. I have neither beard nor mustache. But those, of course, could be acquired so that the crowd wouldn't suspect that the parish priest is interested in the spectacle of two men fighting in public with their fists. Don Camilo shrugged. All things are possible, Lord, and we must also bear in mind that even parish priests are made of flesh and blood. Christ sighed. We are not forgetting it. But if parish priests are made of flesh and blood, they themselves should never forget that they are also made of brains, because if the flesh and blood parish priest wishes to disguise himself in order to attend a boxing match, the priest made of brains prevents him from giving an exhibition of violence. Don Camillo shook his head. Very true, but you should also bear in mind that parish priests, in addition to flesh and blood and brains, are also made of another thing, and when that other thing sees a mayor sent flat before all his own people by a swine from the town who has won by hitting below the belt, which is a sin that Christ did have in for vengeance, that other thing takes the priest of flesh and blood and the priest of brains and sends the lot of them into the ring. Christ, you mean to say that I should bear in mind that parish priests are also made of heart? For the love of heaven, exclaimed Don Camilo, I never presume to advise you. But I would point out that nobody knows the identity of the man with the beard. Nor do I, then, replied Christ with a sigh. But I wonder if you have any idea of the meaning of punching-bag. My knowledge of the English language has not improved, Lord, replied Don Camilo. Well then we must be content without knowing even that, said Christ, smiling. After all, culture in the long run often seems to do more harm than good. Sleep well, champ.
with that, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. I hope you're enjoying these audio projects. Um, please do uh, drop in and uh, give us some feedback on the blog where I have posted uh, the links to this. You can also subscribe on iTunes. I have a link to that. Although I, you know, uh, the iTunes feed remains a little mysterious to me. It comes and it goes. I can't quite figure it out. But you know, who knows? Maybe one of these days I'll get it all sorted. Uh, come and visit on the blog uh, anywhere. Look at all the entries. It's wdtprs.com, whiskey delta tango papa romeo sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? And if that's a little hard to remember, you can always look up fatherzonline.com. Spell out father, F E T H E R Z online.com. Tell your friends about it. And feel free to use the donation button if you like these or if the blog is of any help to you. But most importantly, please pray for me as I will for you.